My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Irina Sarek. Irina Sarek was radicalized in Toronto at the beginning of the 1990s, by the First Gulf War and by the siege of Ganasatage. In late high school, through university, and after, she participated in a range of grassroots social justice, indigenous solidarity, and anarchist organizing. At some point along the way, she decided that she wanted to go to law school. She wasn't exactly sure what she wanted to do with that, she thought maybe environmental law or defending activists in some way, but she didn't really know. She happened to be in law school at the same time that the global justice movement erupted into public visibility in the global north, with the action against the World Trade Organization Summit in Seattle in November 1999. As in earlier generations, this movement upsurge was accompanied by new formations doing movement-oriented legal work. In the case of the global justice movement, this took the form of legal support collectives. Sarek plunged into this work. Among other things, she was involved in founding the Common Front Legal Collective in Toronto, which later evolved into the Movement Defense Committee, which still exists. She's been active as a movement lawyer and heavily involved in collectives and networks doing radical legal support work ever since. Currently, Sarek is also an instructor in the Criminology Department at Kwantlen Polytechnic University in Surrey, B.C. In recent years, her work has included research related to legal support collectives. She has boxes full of printed material produced by such collectives across North America in the last two decades, and she did a series of interviews with people who had participated in them. Though this work did lead to her PhD dissertation completed last year, her motivation was primarily to look at the work of these collectives in a way that might be useful to movements today. Another reason why she decided to do this research was the realization that relatively little had previously been written about legal support collectives. There is a considerable literature on movement lawyering, but it focuses largely on lawyers in particular, and on efforts to use lawsuits and other legal mechanisms to proactively make change. In contrast, legal support collectives tend to be involved in responding to repression, where movements have no choice but to engage with the legal system, due to arrests or other actions by the state. One important element of the work is organizing direct support. That can be things like setting up a phone line for activists to call from jail, going to bail hearings, making sure people have support when they get out, and facilitating collectively organized defense campaigns. Crucially, Sarek argues that in the face of state repression, good preparation in advance by legal support collectives and effective work after the fact can play an important role in preventing, or at least minimizing, the extent to which repression demobilizes movements. As well, legal support collectives usually include both lawyers and non-lawyers. Indeed, Sarek found that the role played by non-lawyers was often crucial. Their somewhat different positioning, both with respect to movements and with respect to the law, gave them a different perspective from which to theorize what they were doing, and a different kind of freedom to act than lawyers, even committed movement lawyers. Another key role played by legal support collectives is popular education about the law. 
This involves doing workshops and trainings and producing educational materials. This work helps activists and organizers understand the law and policing better in a practical sense, so they can make better decisions about action, and it can help them develop a better political analysis of the law and how it works. Legal support collectives can also be an important space for movements to theorize about policing courts and the state. This can involve building up expertise in particular cities, say, about how protest policing is done locally. And, Sarek said, quote, there's also this very radical kind of prefigurative approach to law that is visible in radical legal support organizing that I think goes far beyond what legal scholars do even in their most radical critiques of the state and the law, end quote. I speak with Sarek about both her experience of and her research about radical legal support organizing. Hi, my name is Irina Sarek. I am coming to you today from Toronto, District 1 Spoon Treaty Territory, although until very recently I was based in Vancouver on the territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations. I currently teach in the Criminology Department at Kwantlen Polytechnic University in Surrey, BC, and I am a longtime movement lawyer and legal support organizer. I grew up in Toronto, although I'm from the former Yugoslavia. My radicalizing moments came the first Gulf War and with the Oka crisis. I was too young to be directly involved in work around either of those two events, but they really sort of shaped my understanding. And then I became involved in social justice activism towards the end of high school. And while I was in my undergrad, I was really involved in grassroots Indigenous solidarity and social justice groups in Toronto. Did a little bit of anarchist organizing in the late 90s as well. I also went to law school in the late 90s, and I had already been doing ad hoc legal support work when comrades, you know, got arrested and things like that. But it wasn't until I was actually in law school that I started doing that on a more organized basis. And that's really because my time in law school coincided with the rise of the global justice movement in the global north. That movement really precipitated the development of really organized grassroots radical legal support organizing. And I became part of that both in Toronto and in other cities in Canada and the U.S. So I've really been doing that work pretty consistently since the late 90s. So for well over two decades now, I started a couple of legal support organizations in Toronto, the Common Front Legal Collective that morphed into the still existing Movement Defense Committee. I've been involved in various networks around radical legal support and have also done some work on a more ad hoc basis. I do still do some work around supporting movements in the former Yugoslavia. I'm part of a network called Global Balkans, for example. But yeah, radical legal support, for better or for worse, is really sort of been my focus for pretty much my entire political life. What led to your decision back in the 90s to go to law school and to make this work your focus? When I decided to go to law school, I don't think I really had a clear idea of what I was going to do with that. I had these vague ideas that maybe I would be an environmental lawyer, even though I really had no idea what environmental lawyers did. Then I had this vague idea that, you know, we need more people to defend activists, but I didn't really understand that there was this entire world and history of movement lawyering. So I kind of went into it without a whole lot of 
clear ideas of what I was going to do with that degree. I should also say, you know, I went to law school at the tail end of the 90s, just a couple of years after the Mike Harris conservative government came to power in Ontario. I was in the very last cohort of law students in Ontario who paid something approaching a reasonable rate of tuition. The Mike Harris government deregulated professional school fees, law schools among them. And that's really led to a very different environment now for activists specifically who might be looking at going to law school because I came out of it with almost no debt, which is just certainly not the case now. So that's a, that's a little bit of a digression, but I think it's really important to state that because I think we really underestimate how much current law school tuition in Canada really impacts the ability of activists who want to do movement lawyering, particularly law students who are racialized, who are queer, who are women. It's just a completely different ballgame now. And I ended up really loving law school and it really kind of sharpened my political analysis. When you look at law, it kind of forces you to see how much of law pretends to operate above the realm of the political. And that really helped me understand where I stood politically. And in more recent years, you've taken up some of those experiences of movement lawyering in more of a scholarly mode and done research based on them. What led to the decision to do that? I had originally started a completely different PhD project about 15 years ago now and I kind of struggled with it, never finished it. And then I dropped out of graduate school for a long time. And then it wasn't until maybe three or four years ago that I really got an itch to start doing the research that became my dissertation. But I say I got an itch because I wasn't clear at that point that it was going to become a PhD dissertation. I thought I'm going to do this research project. And I thought maybe, you know, it would be some articles or maybe a book or something. So it just sort of turned into a PhD dissertation when I was allowed to re-enroll in my program. But my goal going in was not necessarily scholarly. It was really to do a sustained look at the world of radical legal support, which no one had really done in any sort of comprehensive way, scholarly or otherwise. Obviously, there were some articles here and there. I'm sure there had been a couple of podcasts like yours. There was a lot of materials about organizing legal support and knowing your rights and things like that. But no one had really sat down and said, there is this organized world of radical legal support organizers. And it would really be useful for movements as well as for legal scholars to actually explore that. I knew that I wanted it to be really based on the experiences and the voices and the thoughts of the people who do this work. And so I knew from the beginning that I wanted to do interviews. I wasn't really sure how to do that. I ended up kind of teaching myself along the way. And I knew that I wanted to spend a lot of time combing through the very large volume of materials I had accumulated over the years. I don't quite know why I've always done this, but beginning in the late 90s, I had started keeping everything I came across that had to do with radical legal support. I had a couple of bankers boxes full of, you know, zines and flyers and meeting notes and legal guides and things like that, and a whole bunch of files electronically as well. So I had this personal archive. And I was really inspired by my comrade and friend Aziz Chowdhury to kind of work through those materials as this like movement repository. So what I ended up basing the study on was my interviews and on these materials and then building the kind of scholarly scaffolding on top of that. Give listeners an overview of some of the key things that emerged for you from all of this material in the course of your research and writing. The big thing that emerged was just how amazingly 
thoughtful and considerate and sophisticated the praxis of radical legal support organizers is. There's just some really amazing thinking about law and politics and organizing and the links between those three things that comes across in my interviews and in the texts and materials that I looked at. I did spend a lot of time reading things and just be like, this is so good. This is amazing. It shouldn't just be sitting in a cardboard box or on the internet archive or something like that. There's some really great movement knowledge here that needs to be passed on. And that became one of my themes, this idea of movement knowledge and legal support organizing as a source of movement knowledge. As movements rise and fall and as newer activists join movements, there's always this reinvention of legal support practices that to some degree I think is inescapable. There's always going to be a little bit of that as people come in and out of groups and movements, but some of it is regrettable and could be fixed if we did a better job of passing on movement knowledge. That was one of the big themes of the work. I guess another big theme that I had was the fact that so much of radical legal support work is done by people who are not lawyers, is done by activists who have taught themselves how to understand the legal system, often through lived experiences of criminalization and repression. And I thought that was really, really important. There's a huge literature on movement lawyering, but there isn't nearly as much attention paid to activists who do legal work, you know, who organize legal support, who do legal trainings, who work with lawyers. And so I really wanted to make that very clear. I and mean, that's something that I tried to do in my interviews. I did interview people who are lawyers. I'm a lawyer myself by training, but I really wanted to make sure that I spend a fair amount of time talking to people who don't have formal legal training or who maybe did this work before becoming lawyers or paralegals. I realized that it made sense to do some movement history as well. One of the really exciting things about the global justice movement in Canada and the U.S. is that it resuscitated this idea of an activist legal collective. They had been around in the past, particularly during like the anti-nuclear movements of the 70s and 80s. There had also been this wave of legal collectives that were more like radical alternative law offices in the 60s and 70s as part of the new left. And then suddenly this idea reemerged around 1999. I really wanted to trace that. And I was fascinated by the fact that there was this historical link to previous movements. And so that really becomes defined by this idea of organized legal collectives, either ones that are based in particular cities or ones that arise temporarily for a particular mobilization and maybe aren't intended to become permanent groups. The other big idea that I looked at in that era was the idea of jail solidarity, which is an idea that became infamous or famous after the WTO convergence in Seattle in 1999. There's sort of this mythology around the fact that people who had been arrested in Seattle didn't give their names and wouldn't plead guilty. And then all these hundreds of people were released from jail with basically the equivalent of a ticket. And so I explore that mythology a little bit. The point that I make about it is that regardless of what happened in Seattle, this idea of jail solidarity became really, really central to the global justice movement. And people try to use that same tactic again in other cities. And it stopped being effective pretty quickly because the state caught on to what we were doing. And then I noticed that the number of legal collectives had really dwindled. And she's referring here to about the years since the global financial crisis in 2008. There had been sort of an organized Canada-US network of collectives, and that had stopped meeting. 
There still were and still are some standing legal collectives, but the number had really died down. And what had replaced them was more ad hoc groupings that maybe didn't call themselves collectives and that arose for particular purposes and then disappeared, as well as what we began calling anti-repression committees. So kind of turning away from just legal support to a broader analysis of state repression and how movements can respond to it and defend themselves from it. And that era took us up through the Black Lives Matter movement and the rise of Black-led legal support organizing and through other examples of legal support that maybe looked a little bit different from the global justice movement, but shared a little bit of that movement DNA. Why was it important to you to focus particularly on movement lawyering in the context of responding to repression and criminalization, and not other aspects of movement lawyering, like, say, using lawsuits to accomplish some goal? There's been a lot written in the Canadian and U.S. context about law as sort of a proactive tool for social change, right? So impact litigation, for example, or charter challenges, that kind of thing. But there wasn't nearly as much written about the way that movements interact with law involuntarily when they are subjects of repression or criminalization. That aspect of how movements interact with law has not gotten nearly as much attention from legal scholars or social movement scholars. The idea of movements engaging with law defensively and involuntarily, that needed more attention. Because in my experience, having done primarily really grassroots work, that is how we engage with law. You know, the people that I've worked with don't really tend to have a lot of faith that court cases are going to result in any sort of substantial social change. And I think, you know, the record kind of bears that out. And so it seemed odd to me that this very typical thing that happens in movements that, you know, the the arrests and repression are part of a life cycle of movements didn't get nearly any attention from social movement or legal scholars. One thing that you often hear in movement contexts about engaging with the legal system is that it can draw energy away from organizing and it can depoliticize and dispirit people. What role have legal collectives played in fending off all of that? There is this narrative, which I think is sometimes true, that any sort of engagement with the legal system ends up being depoliticizing or demobilizing. That's, again, something that's been written and thought about a lot in the context of voluntary proactive engagement. You know, that if an organization decides to bring a lawsuit, that a lot of energy is going to get sucked into the courtroom and off the streets. I don't disagree with that critique at all. But I think there's also a flip side to that, which is that when it comes to criminalization or repression, that is not always a source of demobilization. And that one of the things that the presence of organized radical legal support can do is transform that moment. And to make, for example, arrests at a demonstration or at a convergence something that actually fuels further organizing first through organizing support for the people who are in custody, but then also ensuring that that becomes a moment of political education, of ensuring that people feel supported inside and once they get out. And really taking this moment that could be, as you said, really kind of depressing and demobilizing and using it instead as an opportunity to movement build. 
I don't want to overstate that. That doesn't always happen. People, of course, are harmed and traumatized by arrests and by repression. I'm certainly not suggesting that this is, you know, something that we should be aiming for as a tool for mobilizing, but it does happen. And when arrests and repression happen, organized legal support can really make the difference between that being an event that ends a particular movement or really thrusts an organization into disarray and can sometimes serve to catalyze that into a moment that maybe helps grow that organization that changes the commitment of people, builds skills, builds a political analysis, and at the same time serves to try and de-exceptionalize that moment. One of the things that legal support can do is make it very clear that as much as political repression of movements, particularly left movements, is a particular historic and current process, that criminalization and repression also happen on an everyday basis, particularly in racialized communities and poor communities. And that when activists view repression as something that's exceptional and that makes them kind of special, radical legal support can be there to, to sort of turn that moment into an opportunity for political education, say, no, this kind of stuff happens every day. And your experience of criminalization should actually help hone your political analysis and allow you to feel solidarity for criminalized communities. So there's the important direct support work that legal support collectives do. What are the key elements to the political education role that they also play? The majority of the materials that I looked at had to do with education. So I looked at a lot of, you know, know your rights guides, for example, about the rights that in both Canada and the U.S. people have with respect to police or at demonstrations or during the process of prosecution. I looked at workshop outlines. I watched videos. There's always been this emphasis on what I call popular legal education on the part of radical legal support organizers. That is part of a sort of broader commitment, I think, to popular education generally by left movements. We need to demystify law. We need to make it seem like something that anybody can understand, that you don't need a law degree to understand or engage with the legal system and an attempt to really politicize law and to take away this veneer of the law as being something that exists in this kind of apolitical space and saying that no, law is always political, it always rests on other social and economic and political forces. And in terms of content, some of this gets recycled and changed over the years, which I also thought was really lovely, this idea of as much as we don't do it enough, we do do some passing on of movement knowledge. And I wish that we did more of that. And the content of all of that work, as I said, is really political and just explicitly aims to make law accessible to people so that they understand what they're up against in movements. But then the way that people do legal training, I think, is also really important. Most of the workshops that I looked at used role plays or used other forms of interactive learning. There's this real link to other popular education methods that various left movements have developed over the decades. That link was really lovely to see. What we're doing when we're doing legal training is training the trainer. And if you've gone to a legal workshop, then you should be ready and willing to pass that information on. And so, you know, there's some lovely stories from the anti-globalization days of people who were caught up in kettles or who were in, you know, mass arrests and sitting on buses with their hands zip tied, standing up and giving the people around them sort of a quick and dirty know your rights training and talking about jail solidarity and saying, hey, we need to look out for each other when we're inside, you know, maybe we should all decide not to give our names, or we need to make sure that this person who needs medical care gets it, that kind of thing. 
And you also write about legal support collectives being important sources of knowledge production and theorizing. What has that looked like? Legal collectives, particularly ones that end up being longer standing and that operate in one city over time, end up having really in-depth knowledge about how to navigate the criminal justice system in their city. You know, what police tactics get used over and over again, what the policies and practices of local prosecutors are, and knowledge about tactics and strategies that movements can use to counter those state practices. And they often do that in ways that aren't necessarily accessible to lawyers. And so this is, again, why I think it's so important to look at the work of non-lawyers who do this kind of work, as well as the work of movement lawyers. There's also just been this much more wide-ranging and sort of more praxis-oriented understanding of law that is visible in a lot of the work of radical legal support organizers. And by praxis, I mean the combination of theory and practice. If you compare what some of my interview subjects or some of the materials that I read, if you compare those perspectives on law to the work of, you know, critical legal scholars, for example, there's a lot of the same ground covered there. But there's also this like very radical prefigurative approach to law that is visible in radical legal support organizing that I think goes far beyond what legal scholars do, even in their most radical critiques of the state and law. At its best, radical legal support can point us to understandings of mutual aid and to maybe ways of resolving conflicts that aren't necessarily coming from the state. And so this prefigurative or counter-hegemonic thinking about law in the state, that was the most exciting part of this work for me, really seeing the depth of the analysis that we collectively have through this work. So what would you say are the key practical learnings from your research for movements today? I love legal collectives, and I think we need more of them. (laughs) So that's something that I'm a little bit evangelical about. I think that any city that has active grassroots movements should have some form of legal support organization. Maybe a collective is too much for people, but I do think that there needs to be structures that can pass on this movement knowledge from one generation of organizers to another. That's the really big take home for me is that we can stop reinventing the wheel as much as we do. And really figuring out how to structure that is an important question for movements. What lies ahead for you in terms of research and writing on this topic and in terms of your own movement lawyering? I don't feel like even this dissertation was finished. You know, there was people that I wanted to talk to that I ran out of time to talk to. So there's a few more interviews that I would like to do. But, you know, as much as it's really labor intensive, this way of researching movements as an embedded researcher and really centering primary sources, that's something that I want to absolutely keep doing. I mean, I think that's a really important way of theorizing the work of social movements that, you know, I think is organic and can be really generative. So I definitely want to continue down that path. I need to do something with this dissertation. It might become a book. I'm really not sure yet. But otherwise, I continue to do legal support work. In the past year and a half, I really focused my attention on injunctions and on the impact of injunctions on Indigenous sovereignty organizing and Indigenous solidarity organizing. So that's a whole other area that has required a whole other kind of movement lawyering because injunctions are this really strange legal beast. And even a lot of very experienced lawyers don't know how to work with them, don't know how to defend people charged with contempt of court. And so I've been doing some thinking and writing on that, which is a whole other piece that barely gets mentioned in this dissertation, but has really become a really important topic for organizers and activists throughout Canada in the last couple of years. 
You have been listening to my interview with Irina Sarek, talking about her work as a movement lawyer and her research on legal support collectives. To find out more about her work, search for Irina Sarek on Twitter. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. 